Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, that was great. Thank you very much, Madison. Um, very important thing I didn't mention earlier. Um, one more week of long pants. That's all there is. This is just one more week of it. And then... Uh, um, so we're in a series called Borderlands of Belief. I'm excited to get back to it. Uh, let me uh, show you kind of what we say, you know, of course we've got believers and unbelievers. And then for a long time, and just sort of the middle is this group of people that sort of had nominal faith. They really weren't sure which direction to go. But in our culture, uh, we're seeing a lot of people move over here to this unbeliever category more, more definitively, claiming this. And if you happen to, if you listen to Ben Shapiro at all, I grabbed a hold of it this week because he interviewed on his show uh, William Craig or William Lane Craig, who is a uh, uh, Christian philosopher and theologian. Uh, he's got a book called Reasonable Faith, perfect for this series. It's, it's an excellent work. Um, and Ben Shapiro asked him, why do you think people are running over here to the unbelief? Why do you think people are re- losing their sort of religious faith and becoming over here uh, what he called secular? Because this is another uh, cultural term being used for the people that are on this side. Don't believe there's a God. They tend to be materialists, naturalists. Uh, they don't see any personal being running the universe. Um, and so he asked, he asked him that question. And he said, yeah, it used to be that the people that had this nominal faith would, would stay in the middle and they, they stayed like this. But now they're, they're darting over here. And one of the reasons is because science has so dominated that our culture, and our, there's a cultural bias out now, that if science says it, it's true. They have reached a kind of institutional status and an institutional authority that if they say God isn't here, that if they say there is no God, and many scientists say it, and by the way, we've been arguing in the series, it doesn't matter which side of this you're on, uh, it takes faith. There is antecedent faith behind all of it because none of it can be proven. You can't prove there is a God 100%. You can't prove there isn't one. So we're all taking it by faith. So science has sort of overstepped it bound. That's what Christian Smith uh, says in this very excellent book I'm just about done reading called The Atheist Overreach uh, because they go too far um, in claiming that God doesn't because they don't have any authority to say that. So it takes faith to live on either side of this. Now, if you read John Gray's book, which talks about seven types of atheism, um, this is what he writes at the end of his book, which I found interesting. He says, there's no need for panic or despair. For uh, He says, um, belief and unbelief are just poses. 
They're just poses the mind adopts in the face of an unimaginable reality. In other words, we're all facing very, very difficult things and some of us face harsh realities by becoming unbelievers and some of us face them by becoming believers. This is what he says. He's an atheist. He says they're, they're both poses. Neither one of them can 100% on facts say anything. Then he writes this. A godless world, if you choose this side, which he has chosen, if you choose a godless world, it's just as mysterious as the believing side, the ones who claim divinity. But they don't have near the answers. They don't have nearly all the answers. And then he writes this. The difference between the two is less than you think. And his whole point is, both sides require faith. Both sides have to live with mystery. Both sides. And I thought that was incredibly honest of him. He's incredibly honest through the book. Because somehow you have to deal with these harsh realities. I had a conversation um, with someone this week. Very personal, painful conversation with a person I hadn't spoken to you know, uh, I knew, but I never had this kind of conversation with them. Uh, not believers, but willing to share some real struggles. It was a really special kind of conversation. And struggling with some internal things from her, from past. Not really knowing what to do with it. Overwhelming her. And so, uh, it turns out as we sort of teased it, she believes that she'd been taught early bad, bad people get punished. And so that's, that's sort of made its way into the idea of karma, even though she's never really studied that or figured it out. Um, and so I started to tease that out a little bit. I said, well, so tell me, what's your basis for that? Because what I'm trying to argue in the series, what I'm trying to do is challenge you that if you're on this side of unbelief, I'm just trying to get you to think through your beliefs. If you're on this side and your faith is you're just barely hanging on, I hope this series helps you get stronger. But if you're on this side, I'm hoping that you really think through what you actually believe and make sure it matches reality. And so, so I said to her, I said, what's the basis of this? I don't have a basis for it. Something I was ingrained with since I was a kid. And I wonder how many of us have beliefs like that. And so I just teased it out just a little bit in my mind. I said, uh, so you're trusting, think about this, you're just trusting some impersonal force to mete out judgment perfectly to every single person for every good and every bad that they do. Impersonal, just a force. And there's no clear standard stated for what good is, so you never really know what that is. You never know if you've actually done enough good. There's no hope of healing your painful past because it doesn't offer any help on that. It offers you no assistance in becoming the kind of person you ought to become. It's just dictating good and bad and, mo and doling out punishment. 
So it's no, no hope for change. And then I ask, well, what about when evil prospers? What do you say about karma then? And all I'm trying to do is get you to really think about what you believe or what you don't believe. And that's what John is doing in his book. John said, I'm gonna give you seven signs. And what the beautiful thing about John, the gospel of John, is John is gonna tell you about Jesus because I think Jesus offers the best resources and the best answers to life's harsh realities. I don't think you get any better than Christianity. And John says, I'm gonna show you something. I want you to see something. He says, I'm not gonna just get you to just blindly believe. That's not what we're talking about. I don't want you to just blindly believe, John says. I'm gonna show you seven signs. I want you to see what I saw and hear what I heard so that you understand why I believed. I don't want you to just believe and jump in. That's nominal faith. That'll put you in no man's land and pretty soon you'll be over here because it's not strong enough to withhold the realities of life. And you'll buy anything. John says, let me show you seven things we, we saw and see if they don't impact you. Let me, look, let me help you look at Jesus. So that's what the signs are about. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the signs. Um, John is going to say, and this is what he says uh, in, his, in his smaller letter that he writes later. But this is John's angle in his gospel as well. He says, I'm going to tell you, I want you to see what, we've heard, what we heard, what we've seen, what our eyes have actually seen, what we looked at. How many different ways can he say it? And our hands have actually touched it. I'm not just throwing anything at you. I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm asking, all I can tell you is what we saw was the life. Life in all its fullness. This is what we've always, we couldn't even imagine it. I mean, the truth about Jesus is, if he hadn't lived, you'd have never been able to invent him, one writer said. There's just nobody like him. And John says, let me just show you what we saw because it was eternal life. It was revealed to us. That's why we believed. And he goes on to say, we've seen it and heard it and we testify and tell it to you. So John says, let me show you what that looks like. So now John is gonna say, because this is something we need to learn about ourselves and in the sort of the psychology and theology of belief, which is, um, why is it so hard to believe sometimes? Why is taking, why is it that we can get to a certain point in our rational minds and see enough of the sign, this is John's gonna show us, but we never get past the sign. That's why John calls them signs. In other words, don't get lost in the miracle. See past it. Why is it so hard to see past it? And, that's what John is helping us with. And up to now, we've seen three or two signs. The water turned to wine in John 2. And then we saw in John 4 where the nobleman's son is healed. And John has taught us little things about the signs. And as he goes, he's not only just telling you about what Jesus did, but he's also telling you why it's so hard to believe, revealing a little bit more sign theology. Why it's so hard to see and, what, and it just, if, if you read ahead, you'll figure it out, but I'd have to kill you. Don't do it. Don't read ahead. You'll give, don't do it. Uh, stay in there. So here we are in the third sign. And then the third one is so incredibly interesting. In fact, what makes the third sign so beautiful 
is number one, Jesus seeks a certain person out. Up to now, people have come to Jesus asking for one. Here, Jesus just sort of initiates and says, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to approach somebody. I'm going to approach him and, uh, and you're going to see something happen and then I'm going to pull away. I'm going to pull away and then I'm going to circle back and come to him again so that I can show you the real difference between what it is to see the sign and then to see past the sign. I'm going to show you two pieces. And so in this particular story, you get both parts. So let me just show you this physical. I like seeing it. So you get the physical healing that happens. Then Jesus pulls away and then there's a spiritual challenge later. And in between are two very interesting things. There's a controversy. And the controversy is what's so great is Jesus or John uses the controversies to explain what should have been seen in both places. It's just kind of a, it's again, the psychology and theology of belief. How you get there and why you don't ever get there. Why it's so hard to get there. So, the controversy in this text is very important, even though it's sort of a brief version of a little more complicated ones that come in the rest of the Gospels. So, what are we learning here? Let's, let's figure out how these two are related and what they teach us, okay? Uh, so, let's begin our story. Here it is. We're in John chapter 5. Jesus is traveling back and forth. Remember, John is putting the text these signs together special for you, just special for you. And so he's back in Jerusalem. So he's flipping back and forth. Go to celebrate a Jewish feast. They're in Jerusalem and they get to a place uh, by the sheep gate. There's a pool in Bethesda. And this is sort of a, you know, When you came into Jerusalem, near the temple, by the way, Jerusalem had all kinds of pools because they were constantly purifying things. They had lots of opportunities to purify. So these were two pools that had five porches, sort of keep you out of the sun. And what Nehemiah tells us about the sheep gate is the reason it's called the sheep gate is because they would take the sheep there because it's really close to the temple. They'd clean the sheep, purify the sheep before they would take them to be sacrificed. So sort of uh, uh, interesting how it overshadows this, this story. So here they are in Bethesda and by this pool. And here's what we know about it. What they believed, the reason they're there, look at the sick, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, all lying in the water, great numbers of them all lying around this place. So this would have been sort of a sad scene. This would have been the kind of scene that, you know, it didn't smell great. It, it would be sad. There'd be, uh, and what they, the reason they were all there is because somewhere along the line, there was this superstition that developed that if, uh, if, if the water was stirred, which they believed an angel stirred it and the first person in would be healed. And so they all gathered around hoping. Now, we don't have any evidence that anybody was actually healed. Um, it's sort of a superstition. But if you're facing the harsh realities of life, he, would you go? Probably would. Pretty soon, what is superstitious becomes something that you really 
hold on to because it's all you have. And this is the kind of place that, listen, the beautiful thing is Jesus shows up here. Jesus comes here. He approaches them. This is the kind of scene, that, by the way, the, the, the aristocrats, the wealthy, the rich, the, uh, the upper class, uh, no one of any spiritual authority is gonna show up to this group of people. These are, the, these are the outcasts, the marginal. These people couldn't get there by themselves. Somebody dropped them off. It was like a big old adult daycare. Let's drop you off here all day. I'll come pick you up at the end of the day. Kind of a thing. Because none of them probably, very few of them could get there by themselves. And so um, Jesus shows up at this place. And um, I love the fact that Jesus shows up there. And there was a man who had been disabled for 38 years. So there's a guy there who's been disabled for 38 years. Now, here's the scenario. They're waiting to get into this pool. And in John, up to now, what's important for you to remember is that water has play, plays a very interesting role in John. And, in, and up to now, water has been inadequate. The water had to be turned to wine in John 2. And then in John 4, remember, he meets the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus tells her, now, the water in this well will make you thirsty again. The water that I offer will not. So water has been inadequate. And now there's another inadequate water source that these people have bought into this superstition and they're hoping that water solves their problems. And so water again sort of suffices as that thing that we put our trust in. And obviously it is inadequate. It's amazing, we humans, what we'll buy into and how long we'll buy into it even though it never works. You think about your own life right now. How capable we are of doing that. And this isn't gonna work, but here it is in John chapter, Jesus, Jesus sees him. So Jesus approaches this area, okay, which I love that he does that. And he sees and realizes this man's problem. He's disabled, all right? Been a long time. Now, John has already told us a little bit about him, all right? He's disabled, here's the word again, used three times in this text of this guy, 38 years, which means Jesus walks into this pool and he goes, and he's basically saying, who is going to provide the best illustration? Who can I show what I'm talking about here? And he picks out this guy for 38 years, which by the way, the ancients, they didn't, I mean, 40 was old. You hardly didn't make it past 40. So for 38 years, probably all his life, he couldn't move. And here he is. It's just a hopeless kind of a scene. John tells us about it, but I love the fact that Jesus sees him. He knows his story, doesn't need to be told it, that he's been disabled a long time already, sort of a hopeless situation. And then he asks this question. 
Do you want to become well? And this is a very important question. So you see Jesus take the initiative, which you learn in scriptures. None of us, none of us really come to God ultimately. We'll come to, we'll come to God for something, but we never come to God for the thing we most need. Because there's some energy in us that won't let us do it. If he's handing something out, we'll show up. We're not necessarily trusting him with the thing he wants us to trust him with the most. And so this is this fella. Do you want to become well? Very interesting question. Commentators debate what in the world is going on here and how much we can psychoanalyze the question. I think the answer to the question is very, very simple. Because notice what Jesus gets out of him. Jesus is trying to get something out of this man that, by the way, is very hard to get out of somebody. And so it's gonna become a picture. And here's what he gets out of him. This is what the man actually says. And Jesus wanted him to say this. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's turned. Because while I'm trying to get into the water, someone else is going to go in before me. All Jesus wanted him to do in this spirit, in this picture of the physical to the spiritual, because that's what the physical is doing, showing the spiritual. All he wants the man to do is verbalize his inability and his helplessness. That's what the word means, disabled, paralyzed, helpless. He wanted the man to say it out loud. Physically about ourselves, we're quick to say it. How many times have you walked around going, yeah, I can't do that anymore? <laughs> You're happy to say, yeah. Uh, you guys are playing basketball in the morning? Not me. My knees would shatter. Or how many, of you, how many times have you said physically, you're happy to admit, can't do that anymore? How many times? Oh, can't do that anymore. Spiritually, you don't want to say it. Spiritually, it's really hard to get out of your mouth. That's what this guy's doing. And Jesus is gonna show this physical. Now, this is what the man essentially says. And Jesus was looking for it. Uh, I certainly cannot do anything and I have no one to help me. That's the response Jesus was looking for. That's why he called on this guy. So, here's what happens. This is an interesting word. So, uh, let me show you something that, um, same word being used, by the way, in Romans 5, 6. While we were still helpless, paralyzed, disabled, same Greek word, Christ died for the ungodly. Whatever it means to be ungodly and sinful, It has put us in a position where we cannot solve the problem ourselves. But to get someone to realize their helplessness, and you'll see it as the story goes, it's just, this is what's gonna be drug out of this picture, is that to see our spiritual helplessness is very, very difficult. And so here's what happens here. Jesus really just wants him to see if he can say this spiritually. And so what happens after this is very of course, very interesting. Now look what Jesus does. Jesus says to him, after he explains he can't do anything about it, 
Jesus immediately, look, stand up, take your mat walk. Jesus essentially says to him, you don't need the water. I'll be your water. Same thing he told the woman at the well. I'll be your water. And immediately, and this is a great word, because not only has he been there 38 years, hopeless, he had no hope, his past was incapable, his future didn't look bright, and then all of a sudden, in a moment, one word from Jesus, and this man is physically healed. He is up and about walking. And then John just says, oh, by the way, it was the Sabbath. And as soon as you see that, you go, well, that's not really the thing I was expecting. I was expecting this guy to be, you know, doing that. (laughs) That kind of thing. And expressing, I mean, a dialogue with Jesus. He doesn't get that. This guy just walks away. So there's no response, there's no faith, there's no questions, there's nothing except for this issue about the Sabbath. It's as if Jesus is gonna say, let me tell you why there's silence and there's no dialogue. Why why he will take physical from me, but he won't discuss the spiritual with me. And the answer is in this Sabbath. The whole culture dominated by the idea of Judaism, of course, in this ancient Judaism here in Israel. And the Sabbath was at the center of what they believed. Now we're moving a little bit away from superstition of the water to a little more of the actual religious beliefs of the day. And at the center of Judaism is the Sabbath. It's every seven days. The festivals are important, they're huge, but they're yearly. This is every seven days. It's on every Jew's mind. They look toward it. They can't wait to get to it. It's how they determine and picture their spirituality. This is their spirituality. And it's incredible what they have done to this. So let me show you what happens. So uh, we're going to get a window. And here's what you're going to learn. This is the reason the signs do not work even if you're the sign. Even if the sign is done to you, you'll literally walk away from it and miss the point. And it could be some superstition or it could be some real religious notion or idea or belief. And for him, it's the Sabbath. So, uh, here's what happens. The Jewish leaders, this man evidently headed over to the temple And rather than having a dialogue with Jesus, ends up running into them. This is where he runs to. He runs to the Jewish leaders. And they say, what are you doing? Who did this? This is the Sabbath. What are you carrying your mat for? Can you imagine that that's the only question you get? 38 years you haven't moved? 38 years you've never gone anywhere alone? And this is the question. Look, you see the blindness? This is why we can't see past signs. You say, what is it about it? And what, what are they believing that's similar to how we think? Because John here is setting you up. And let me tell you how he's setting you up. Notice he says, 
There's, here's the verbal idea, carrying your mat. You get the picture of the activity. Uh, you get the picture of the activity here. The man who said, that, uh, there was a man. I don't even know who the man was. We didn't have a dialogue. I got up and moved. I just went on my way. He made me well. He said, pick up your mat and walk. And more activity. And then you got it even one more time. They asked him, who is the man who said to you to pick up your mat and walk? There it is again, another verbal idea. What you got is a guy who couldn't move is all of a sudden really moving well. And the controversies on the Sabbath about rest and not moving. That's how the controversy comes in to explain. Because <laughs> here, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And this is the irony of the whole thing. Uh, the Sabbath was, you know, sort of uh, mimicked after God created the world six days, rested on the seventh day. Uh, and so the scriptures teach that the Sabbath meant that you weren't supposed to work. You weren't supposed to go do business. You weren't supposed to have commerce. So don't carry products in and out of the city. But the Jews at this time right here have turned that into something else. They have turned it actually into something very laborious labor-driven. In fact, Jesus says you burden people with all of, they've come up with 39 categories of things you can't do and made it much, made it much work, much more work in the rest. You're supposed to be resting, you've actually made it more work. And, you know, the Mishnah gives you like 39 things, categories. And I, I, I didn't read it in the first service, but do you want to hear a few of the things you couldn't do on the Sabbath? Here they are. Uh, sowing, plowing, reaping, uh, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, uh, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops. No loops. <laughs> Weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot. And that's a miserable day. Uh, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches. Hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying, salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, one letter, that's it. Uh, erasing in order to write two letters, no erasing. Uh, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer and taking out aught from one domain to another. Uh, in other words, one place to another. Don't move anything from one place to another. Leave everything where it is. They just made it so miserable and so much harder. But what is it about us that does that? What is it about us, this dark energy inside us that says, I can do it? That says, just give me a list. I'll prove my worth. I'll show I'm capable. Because the last thing I want to feel, while I'll physically tell you I can't play basketball with you Saturday, I'm not going to tell you I'm not a good guy and that I don't do good stuff and that someone in the world, maybe God, hopefully God, probably God, definitely God, is impressed with me. We just want to earn it ourselves. No favors. God, I'll take a handout. But I don't want to admit my humility. 
that's essentially where this guy is. And so their rest wasn't rest at all, it was work. That's what we're capable of doing. We're we're capable of taking rest and making it work. And that's what this guy does. Actually more spiritually demanding. We put more demands on ourselves. So they miss the healer and they miss the healing completely. And so now you're like, wow, that's where it's gonna end? This guy's lost. He has no idea who Jesus is. Because Jesus sort of slipped away and he slipped away on purpose because he wants to show you something else. He's going to circle back. That's what he does. He circles back. And so here's what happens. So after this, this is another verb of Jesus acting the way he does. He finds the man. And I love this. He saw the man, realized the man, spoke to the man. And now he circles back and finds the man. And I love this about Jesus because this is how he works. Finds him at the temple. You know, the temple was a busy, bustling place. It's the time of the festival. Everybody's there. This is the kind of thing where, you know, you don't just run into this guy again. You you seek him out. Jesus knew exactly where he'd be. In the temple. Running off to that do-it-yourself religion. Running off to that I can do it myself. And so, he circles back. Now, something about your life, this will happen. Probably all have testimony to this. It's very possible you're here today because Jesus has circled back into your life. Um, First time the gospel was ever presented to me was in a skating rink. I was seventh grade. I had just come off the floor of an all-boys skate. I was so fast. (laughs) Couldn't do that anymore. (laughs) Just speaking of it. This was back in the day when skating was really cool. We were cool. How many of you remember that? Because you were cool too. Yeah, you were cool too. You're not anymore, but you were cool. Remember you used to sit on those, you used to come in with your little, you know, you get your little drink after big hard skate and you'd sit on that, uh, uh, that, that big old rough carpeted, <laughs> those big shaggy carpet benches. And I had a man, this is an adult man, just walking around sharing the gospel with people. And it was dark. And he comes up behind me while I'm sitting on this thing, taps me on the shoulder and gives me the gospel. I thought he was nuts. I went out and skated. Just completely ignored him. I was okay. Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't too offended. Because then just a few years later, while I'm in New York now, living in a little town called Round Lake. Anybody ever heard of Round Lake? Do you know that over the years, only two people have ever known where Round Lake is? It's a little in the county of Saratoga northern uh, New York, just north, upstate New York. Beautiful little town, 600 people. Even, I think, even as of 2,000, 600. And our nutty family, escaping Miami, runs into this little couple that lives down the street with four kids and they were the most precious kids and the best people in the whole community. We all loved them. And uh, they were Christians. They got the three of us, my sisters, going to church long before we ever even knew who God was. I sat through services there and didn't even know what in the world was going on. No spiritual recollection of it at all. It was a year later when God circled back into my life again through my father. That's when I finally saw it. But don't you love the fact that God circles back into your life? It could be events, it could be circumstances, it could be 
from a, you know, something you had in your childhood, you learned, but you ran away from it and it comes back to you in your life. I just love how he does that. And he does it to this man. And he says to this man, uh, look, you have become well. So here's Jesus distinguishing what happened before the physical. Look at you all up and about, moving. That's wonderful. Now let's see if I can get you to see the spiritual problem you have. Let me see if I can take you the next step. And he says to him, don't sin anymore. This is a really incredibly, it just seems over the top. Don't sin anymore lest something worse happen to you. It's my, wow. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is trying to show him he's got a spiritual problem that is continuing. It hasn't ceased, it hasn't stopped. And the fact that he can walk isn't changed it at all. And this is what Jesus, this is what John means by the sign. You can see the sign, but if you don't see what Jesus is really getting after, then you miss it. So he refers back to his physical healing and then he says, no more sinning. Now this guy is a, this is a guy who had no, couldn't move. Like how much sin did he do? Where'd he go? It's like, you're not really sure how to understand Jesus' comment. He's basically saying you're spiritually sick and disabled. He's saying you are spiritually helpless. And this problem is ongoing. And something worse. You say, what's the worse? Well, you got to read, and we, we're not doing it today, but you got to read the rest of John 5. And Jesus is going to say that it's judgment. You will stand before God one day. You will give an account of your life. And that's exactly what this man is hoping. This man is, this man is hoping because he's darted to the temple. He, he's, he's doing the best he can. He finally got two legs working. And he ran to the temple to try to please the Jewish leaders and, and look as good as he can and be as good as he can. And John says, that's not going to cut it. And so John is hoping that his response will be, John is hoping that his response will be the same thing it was when he was physically challenged. I can't do anything about my sin and I have no one to help me. That is what Jesus was hoping he would say again. Looking for the exact same response. But instead, notice what this man does. And you're thinking, well, maybe this time, maybe the second time around, he'll get it. The man went away. I love this verb. It just means to you just go. He just went away. No conversation. Again, no response, no faith, no questions, nothing. Just went away. It's just a verb for go. I just call him the gone guy. Gone guy. He's just gone. And as soon as he does, what does he do? He just goes and tells on Jesus. Oh, hey, I finally got that guy's name, by the way, and he's the one who did it. Blame him for my mistake on the Sabbath. Don't blame me for my mistake on the Sabbath. I'm one of you guys. Count me in as one of the good guys. He's the bad guy. That. One commentator said, this is what faith looks like when it's going nowhere. 
He uses his two new working legs to go get into good standing with those who are self-righteous. And he chooses sides. He basically says, rather than, rather than, I certainly can't and I have no one, here's what he basically says, I can and I need no one. I can and I need no one. That's his response. So he joins the self-righteous crowd. You know what's really difficult? You know what's hard? Why it's hard to see past the sign? And here's the reason is because it's very difficult for you to see your good as sinful. You, you just won't see your good as sinful. You know that? And see, your good is, you know, your good ends up being that thing that you take pride in and you become sort of ego-driven about it and self-righteous about it, the things that you do and don't do, and you think God is obligated then. It's not about what God gives me, it's about what I earned from him. While I'm studying this passage this week, this is the reason I'm bringing this up, I got a tweet from Tim Keller, not personal, it was, it was tweeted, it wasn't to me. I wish it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't talking to me. This is what he says. You can reject God by rejecting his law and living any way you see fit. And you can also reject God by embracing and obeying God's law so as to earn your own salvation. You're basically saying, I don't need you. I don't need you. And that's this guy. So now you come back to the controversy real quick. And this is how this thing closes. Now, so again, second time around, the guy still no response. Now, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders are persecuted. They're missing it completely. So this is what Jesus tells them. How are you going to explain yourself, Jesus, for doing things like that on the Sabbath and telling this man to do that kind of thing on the Sabbath? Here's what Jesus answers. My father is working until now. Now the Jews believed that even though God rested on the seventh day, it doesn't mean that he just shut down all works. He was still having to sustain the universe, still having to do, you know, people had to be you know, born and all that other kind of stuff. So it wasn't like that, but here's what Jesus is saying. I'm him. I've come on the scene. I'm working. This is an incredible statement. Far greater than you might imagine at first, because here's how I would challenge you. I would say, what other religion in the world have you ever noticed the God working his behind off to save people? Do you ever see it? Go to any religion in the world you want. The God there is giving you the demands, telling you to work, telling you how to work. And here's Jesus saying, I'm working. You're bringing up the Sabbath? You're throwing the Sabbath in my face? I'm working so you can actually rest. I'm your Sabbath. I was your water, and now I'm your Sabbath. I'm telling you, exhausted people, doing your best to make God happy, you can't. No religion in the world's gonna tell you that either. Hey, give it up. Quit your working. Stop. Rest. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 10, all who are weary and labor 
come to me and find rest. Learn from me. I will give your soul's rest. There's a kind of a soul rest. You know, it kind of reminds me of Undercover Boss. You watch that show? There's a little difference here. Don't, don't, don't uh, like tease this all the way out. But it's like Jesus in disguise. I am the father working. It's like when the undercover boss, you watch that show. I watched it for a little while, but I got to the point where I couldn't handle the ineptness of the bosses. They couldn't do, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't, they, they couldn't do anything in the stores. Couldn't load boxes right. And they're running the company. I couldn't stand it anymore. And here God says, I'm coming in disguise and I can show you that I'm working and I'm working so that you don't have to work. This is the work of redemption. But you see, here's what happens. You gotta be able to stop and you gotta be able to trust and you gotta be humble. Because that's what rest is. And the physical rest here they were trying to rest on the Sabbath and missing it completely. And you know, I just Googled real quick the sleeping problem we have in our country, just America. Do you know we spend $50 billion a year on sleep aids? For some reason, we can't sleep. We've got anxieties and frustrations and overwhelmed by so many things, we could be either physical or mental, and we, we just can't sleep. And many of us are happy to get as much in in the day as we can. Some of us boast about the fact that we only get four or five hours of sleep and we're up and at them. There's just something inside of us. And that's what happens to this man. This man finally gets two working legs. He's actually moving. And here's the thing you can't get him to do is rest again. He finally gets two working legs and now he's going to take those legs and he's going to make sure he becomes the person he ought to be. The person he's never gotten to be before God. So a man who couldn't move now can't rest. That's a picture of the human race. We don't want to take God's grace. And it's offensive because it says I'm a sinner. And if you're this guy, you're like, you're going to tell me I'm a sinner? I'm working too hard now. I got legs. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the story of Alex Trebek. Host of Jeopardy. Stage four cancer. Just been reading the stuff that's coming out on him. Uh, I just, just feel sad for him. Anyway, he wrote this this past week in an interview. He said this. I can deal with the physical pain but I'm not used to dealing with the surges that come on suddenly of deep, deep sadness. And I said, here's a guy where the physical pain is not his greatest problem. He's got deep internal harsh realities he's facing and deep sadness over that reality. And his answer to the problem says, He said this, I'm drawing strength from my fans. And I just stopped for a second. I just said, I hope that's not your only source 
that really at the end of the day, all you just said, Alex, was your fame is the only thing you can claim. And as long as you're praised and you get the identity for being the smart guy on the planet, and as long as everybody sees you as something great, that's how you'll deal with the surges of sadness. It's the guy that says, all I have to show for me and what reminds me of really who I am is the applause of fans. It's the guy who can't wear, it's just look what I've done, look who I am, look what I've achieved. I'm somebody. And when Jesus comes into your life, you gotta go to this dark place if you realize you're nobody and then you realize that the same guy who says he's gonna judge me at the end of the day also is the one who went to a cross and said it is finished you can't do it tough to hear I'll do it for you Jesus said I'll do it for you I'm working so you don't have to let's bow our heads Father I pray someone in here through this incredible story another glimpse of who you are some of our Maybe our superstitions and maybe even our ideas of good and bad. We'll think through them a little bit clearer and realize who you are and what you're offering. And only you can open eyes, Lord. Only you can open ears. And I pray that you'll do that this morning. Help us to see what's so hard to see. To hear what's so hard to hear. So that we can accept the wonderful offer of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.